Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Delroy Lindo is an incredible actor. He's one of the best to do it. His childhood was all over the place. He lived in London, then he moved to Canada. In his teens, he came down to the States. He ended up at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. And he was a theater actor for about the first decade of his career. He got a Tony nomination. But Spike Lee changed Lindo's life. He cast Lindo in Malcolm X as West Indian Archie. It wasn't a huge part, but it made a huge impact. You look like you're new in town. From what I can see, you're you're pretty handy with a buckle. He had it coming. Pull up a chair. All of a sudden, Lindo was a movie actor. He was in Get Shorty, Gone in 60 Seconds, a bunch of Spike Lee pictures. Their most recent collaboration was To Five Bloods. Lindo played a vet returning to Vietnam. If you saw that movie, you know how powerful Lindo was in it. You will not kill Paul. You hear me? And the U.S. government will not take me out. I will choose when and how I die. You dig? Delroy Lindo's latest project is the Hulu show Unprisoned. It's about a father named Edwin and his daughter, Paige. They're, well, let's just say they're working on their relationship. Edwin is smart, handsome, charming, charismatic, and just got out of prison. Paige is his support on the outside, only she's feeling pretty mixed about the whole thing. Actually, she is feeling very mixed about the whole thing. Lindo plays the father. The daughter is played by Kerry Washington. In this clip, Edwin, the dad, is fresh out of the halfway house. He's reunited with his daughter, and his parole officer wants to know, where's he going to live? Once a week, check-ins for drug testing and career counseling, and I assume he'll be living with you. Oh, no, no that's no Absolutely no-go. not. But we do recommend parolees live with family to give them the best chance of staying out. Yeah, no, of course, that makes sense. But I, I only have two rules, and one of them is that he cannot live with me. The other and is don't, don't ask, ask me for money. money. But what my daughter doesn't know is that I'm out for good this time, and you, <laughs> you're going to see... For your last. I have heard this before. In 1986, 1992, 1998, actually December of 97, and then most famously in 2005. So I, you know, I mean, what's different? What's different is that I mean it this time, Paige. Delroy Lindo, uh, welcome to Bullseye. So happy to have you on the show. So happy to get to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So this this show isn't a sitcom, but it is television comedy. And I wonder if that was something that had ever been offered to you or that you had ever thought about doing. Every now and again, um, comedic work has been offered to me, but there are, usually it is accompanied by the, um, there's a comment, well, we understand he's not known for being for doing comedy. Um, In this instance, Carrie and Tracy in our first couple of conversations described this or described the aspiration for this work as a dramedy. And so I understood or I had an understanding that it was, you know, a mix of comedy and, 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 and drama. Do you think of yourself as being funny? I'm not I'm not asking you to brag on yourself. What I'm asking is do you find in your career that you're like, man, I'd like to do more of that. I, I think I, I think I'm as good at that as I am at the other thing. Um well comedy is difficult 
I mean, every, I mean acting is difficult. Um, do I aspire specifically to do comedy? I guess I would say yes from the standpoint that it is another um, opportunity to show range in one's work as an actor. And and so from that standpoint, you know, I'd like to get a crack at doing um, a range of, of work. And I think I have to 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 an extent, um, but certainly, you know, out just out and out comedy has has they have been um, a smaller part of the work that I've done. Look, I don't know. I'm thinking Get Shorty. That's that's a comedy. Um and you're really funny in it too. Um, thank you, thank you. And if and if I were to stretch my brain further, I could probably think of a couple of other um, comedies. But you know, certainly, uh, Get Shorty was a comedy, and and it was towards the beginning of my film career. So, yeah, I'd like to do more of that. I mean, I feel like one of your greatest strengths. I mean, obviously, like I, I think people probably offer you work on the strength of your presence, you know, the intensity that you're able to bring, the physically, emotionally, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But to me, one of your greatest strengths as a performer, and one of the things I enjoy watching in your performances so much is how good you are at being sly. Mm. Um, that there is, you know, you can play something head on for sure. You're fully capable. But like, I really enjoy watching you play someone who's got a trick up their sleeve mm -hmm. or knows one thing more than the other people in the scene mm -hmm. or, you know what I mean? That kind of I thing. I do. That's I think I know what you mean. The thing is this, it, it feels to me that um, that's very lifelike. I mean, not that quality in me per se, but the, the aspect of people communicating and communicating on one, le one level externally, but internally they may very well have a whole other agenda going on internally. And that's that happens in life all the time. So perhaps um, your recognition of that in me is in fact a, a recognition or an acknowledgement of kind of a lifelike quality. And, and let, me, uh, let me say one other thing about um, going back to your, your original question. The thing that as comedy as far as comedy is concerned the um the thing that get shorty and uh unprisoned having common to an extent is that it's it's good writing i remember reading when i read the get shorty script for the for the screenplay for the first time it felt um whoa, this is terrific writing, because initially I was not aware that, in fact, it was based on the, I mean, even though it said it on the, on, I had not at that point read the Elmore Leonard book, so I didn't know that the source was terrific. Um, so I think what Get Shorty and Unprisoned have in common to an extent is the fact that, A, it's well-written material, even though I'm, let me be clear, I'm not making a comparison between Get Shorty and Unprisoned, but what I'm saying they're is- They're different things, for they're sure. They're very different animals. But what I am saying is, on some level, the comedy comes out of the situations that the people are in. We've got more from my conversation with Delroy Lindo still to come. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey there, beautiful people. I'm Jarrett Hill. And I'm Trayvon Anderson. And we want to know, have you ever had mixed feelings about the things that you love? Ooh, maybe about the things that you hate? Then Fantai is the show for you. Fantai is the podcast for all those complex and complicado conversations about the gray areas in our lives. You might have conflicting feelings about Kamala Harris or mm -hmm. propaganda or mm -hmm. interracial friending. Mm-hmm. That's all right, because we do too. And we get into it every single Thursday. Catch this Slay Worthy audio at MaximumFun.org. That's MaximumFun.org slash Fanti. That's F-A-N-T-I. Come get all this good good. Or this great great. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. 
Our guest is Delroy Lindo. He's a veteran actor. He's been in movies like Malcolm X, Crooklyn, and The Cider House Rules. These days, he's starring on the TV show Unprisoned. It's about a father who reconnects with his adult daughter after serving 17 years in prison. There's some comedy, there's some drama, and Lindo is extraordinary at both. Let's get back into the conversation. I happen to have a clip from Get Shorty right here. So oh, that's hilarious. For real? I think we should I think we should listen to it. So your <laughs> character so this this movie is and the book are about a mobster who goes to LA to basically end up breaking into show business. That's John Travolta's character, Chili. And um he ends up writing a script and it's like caught up in some stuff, and your character <laughs> is a shady investor in the project that he needs to shake loose uh, in order to move forward. But it's interesting. Um, you're describing it and you're laughing already, right? So it's, yeah. it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of sort of inherently funny, but please well, go I love, I, mean, I love, sure love Elmore Leonard. Like I, I got to interview him one time while he smoked menthol cigarettes on a hotel balcony. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, he wasn't allowed to smoke in the hotel room. And it was just a real highlight of my career. But um, it's a wonderful movie. So this is a scene where um, this is a scene where your character knows that John Travolta's character is trying to shake him loose, uh, but your character wants to stick around. So what do you think of the script? Uh, well, the first thing that's got to go is the title. I mean, this writer's name, Murray Saffron, would be better than Lovejoy. Now I'm with you on that one. You know what I'm thinking. Why don't you and I, we sit down, we write the script over where it needs it. You could write one of these. There's nothing to it. All you do, you get an idea, you set down what you want to say on paper. Then you hire somebody else to fill in the commas and where they belong, if you're not positive yourself. Maybe fix up the spelling where you have some tricky words. Although, I've seen some scripts, I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. All right, you get to the end. You write in, fade out, you're done. That's it. That's it. That's all there is to it. Then what the do I need you for? <laughs> when you were making that movie, you were relatively new in the movie business. You had yeah. uh, done a lot of theater acting. Yes. But, yes. Um, what was it like to be in a satire of a world that you yourself were still kind of getting the lay of the land of? Um, that's a really good question because it's causing me to recollect. I'm not sure <clears throat> that I'm going to answer your question but there are a couple of recollections that I have that may not be actual, actually uh, responding to what you've asked me. There were a couple of very significant differences on Get Shorty. So the um, first thing that I recall is being in the meeting with Barry Sonnenfeld and the casting director whose name I, I I can't remember, I don't remember. But it was my first meeting on Get Shorty. And I was in the meeting and we would Barry Sonnenfeld and I were talking. And then he said to me, okay, should we should we read a, a few, you know, let's read a couple pages. And the casting director said, oh no, 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 no. He's not auditioning. This is just a meeting. And internally I'm thinking yeah, right, right. I'm, I'm not, I'm not auditioning. This is just, we're just talking. <laughs> but I was stunned because even though I had not auditioned for the last two films, the previous two films that I had done, which were Crooklyn and Clockers, uh, directed by Spike, um, I had not. I had auditioned for Malcolm X, but Spike actually just offered me, <clears throat> excuse me, on the on the strength of. Um, what I had done in, in Malcolm X, Spike just called me up and offered me um, Crooklyn and and Clockers. So in this Get Shorty meeting, um, 
I, I don't. I really do not recall wh- whether it had been presented to me as a as an audition or just a meeting. I really do not remember. But, but what I do remember when Barry Sonnenfeld said, "Let's let's read some words," and the casting director just said, "No, no, no. That's not. That's not. That's not. This is this is not what's happening here." And I was very pleasantly surprised. Then I got um, a second uh, meeting with uh, Barry, the casting director, and a couple of other executives. Danny DeVito was there, the the people who were involved with Jersey Films. Um, Michael Schamberg, uh, Stacey Scher, I believe her name was, and Danny DeVito. I think they were at the time partners in this company, Jersey Films. And I was asked to go and meet with all of them. And so I went. And Barry had said, the only thing, Barry Sonnenfeld had said to me, the only thing that I ask is that you, uh, when we start working on this, you talk really fast. Just just keep talking, talk, talk really fast. So I, I, I remember going into the room, even though I was not specifically asked to read any pages from the script, but I went into the room and I said, I just wanted you guys to know that I can talk really fast when you need me to. And, and if that's really what's required, I can do that. No problem. Hands down. It's it's not a problem, you guys. So, you know, whatever you guys decide, hey, it's, it's good. I can talk fast. And <laughs> we were sitting, we were sitting at this long desk and, and Danny DeVito was sitting at the end of the desk and he said, um, and he leaned over to one of his partners, either Stacey Scher or Michael Schamberg, I don't remember. And and Danny DeVito said, okay, he's got this. Come on, let's just get out of here. Come on. And um that was um that was a revelation to me because it was the first um aside from Spike, you know, big studio film that I would be doing with big movie stars. And um on some level it was, oh, if this is the way it is, I, I like this. <laughs> I'll, I'll take this all day long. <laughs> And then the other thing about um, my first day of work on the Get Shorty set, I, I walked into my 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 trailer, and um, there was a big Adidas bag, <clears throat> and it was full of stuff: sneakers, sweat sweatpants, and sweat tops. And I remember I I looked inside the bag, and I said, "Ah, oh, this is a mistake," and I and I picked up the bag. <laughs> And I went outside and I spoke to one of the uh, the ADs, the assistant directors, and I said, "Oh man, look here! This this bag was in my camper. It's, it's, it's not for me. It's, it must be a mistake here." And the cat said, "No, no, no. That's that's for you." And I said, "Oh, I I really like this." <laughs> <laughs> so they, I don't know if I answered your question, but they are two very, very two or three very specific recollections that I have that separated after coming from the theater. Uh, working in the theater um, separated my experience as a as a, as a film actor from from my experiences working in the theater or even working on with Spike. So, how long did it take for you to feel like you weren't a visitor in film? Huh, that's another really good question. That's a really good question, and I'm not being facetious. I'm really not being facetious. I'm not sure that I've ever. No, if I'm honest, I, that's a great question. And I would say to you, I'm not sure. I'm not sure when um, when or if I've ever had that conversation with myself. I'm really not sure. I think as I sit here today and uh, respond to that question, I have a certain comfort level in Internal comfort level that I, you know, I, I can work well for and with the camera, but I'm not sure when I um, when I felt that internally. Again, I have a, a a recollection of something that doesn't really address your question, but it it was an in- interesting internal shift for me. And that was when Malcolm X, uh, after Malcolm X had been released and had been in the theaters for a few weeks, I actually had been out of the country working on another film. 
Um, and I came back to New York, and I was walking down Lexington Avenue. It was Lexington, Lexington Avenue in the 20s. And uh, an African-American couple came, toward, were walking toward me. And as I got within earshot, uh, the sister said to the brother, oh, oh, that's that dude from Malcolm X. And that was the first time that that had happened for me. And it was, oh, wow. Because I was not at all prepared for the impact that my character in West in uh, Malcolm X, the character I played, West Indian Archie, I was not at all prepared for the impact that that character had in the film because um, in a three-hour film, I think that I, as an actor playing West Indian Archie, was probably only in the film, I mean, I would say less than 15 minutes but the impact was was significant, and I was not prepared for that. So the reaction to my work in, in Malcolm X um, was very, as of working on film, was very different than anything I had experienced to that up to that point. But to your question, I'm really not sure if there was ever a time when I said, oh, okay, I'm a film actor now. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm talking to you from the Bay Area, right? You are? So I'm from the great city of San Francisco, born and raised. Oh, okay. But I'm in Los Angeles. Okay. And I'm not even really in show business. I do comedy podcasts and a public radio show. I could but, tell that man from talking to you. I said, this cat's not, not experienced. I mean, what, what the, <laughs> I could tell that. <laughs> you take one look at my face, you can see that I'm not really in show business. Which explains why this is not an audio visual. This is, this yeah, is why it's just My television audio. show ran for three months. Um, <laughs> So, <laughs> uh, I'm, I had to move to LA, right? Yeah. I, I was like, there came a point where it was like, if I want to do stuff, I got to be in LA. Yeah. Um, and I've gotten used to it, you know, yes. I like it pretty well. You live, you live in the East Bay, right? In Oakland or something? Yes, I do. So that's a choice that you made. And at some point you made a choice not to move to New York or LA. Um, no, no, well, no, no. Um, I lived in New York for many years and, and. Certainly, working as a as a as a theater actor, I was I was based in New York City, and I I lived in New York for the first ten years of my uh, uh, acting career, working as a New York City based theater actor, and then I still have a place on the East Coast close to New York, so I've always maintained my New York connection. I did make a choice not to move to Los Angeles. Um, because I have always felt that I felt then at the beginning, beginning of my career. And I, and I've always felt that LA would not be a good mix, uh, um, be more specific that my personality and the personality of the city of Los Angeles would not be a good mix. And so, yes, I made a conscious choice not to move to Los Angeles. Did your film career allow you to move to Oakland? Well, evidently it did, <laughs> but, but. Because <laughs> you're talking about 10, 10 years. I'm trying to put a timeline together in my head. And if you're talking about 10 years or so into your career in New York, that's right around the start of your film career. Well, let me say this. Let me, let me explain. Um, I had gone to school in the Bay Area. I, I studied at the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco in the late 1970s. My theater career started in New York. I moved uh, to New York and worked um, from 1980, 1979, to the early 1980s, pretty much exclusively as a theater actor. Every now and again, I'd, I'd get a, a day part on a soap. I did some soap work, and I did a couple of smaller parts in, in films that came to New York, feature films that came to New York and cast uh, actors out of New York. I moved back to the Bay Area in 1996. 
So by 1996, I had done the three films with Spike, Malcolm X, Crookling Clockers, and um, Soul of the Game, HBO. I had done Ransom with Ron Howard and Mel Gibson. So when I moved back to the Bay Area in 1996, yes, my film career was was off and running, and it was in the ascendancy. Um, in in retrospect, did I? F- yes, I must have apparently felt secure enough, even with the even though it was at the beginning of my career, relatively speaking. I must have felt secure enough that which actually turned out to be a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) I felt secure enough that um, I could anticipate continuing to work in film without moving to Los Angeles per se. So the fact that I was familiar with the Bay Area, having gone to school here, I had friends in the Bay Area, made the Bay Area... Um, a doable, in my mind, a doable compromise. When I was a kid, my dad taught at USF, University of San Francisco, for a minute. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the highlights of my adolescence, and I guess this would have been shortly before you moved to the Bay Area, uh, but one of the highlights of my adolescence was my dad had this horrible car that he had inherited, <laughs> a 1977 Chevy Nova. Mm-hmm. That was metallic brown. It was a horrible <laughs> car, mm-hmm. and um, but it was our first. It was the first time we had had a car, so it was exciting that we had a car. Right, and he uh, the car broke down or the battery died in the parking lot at USF, and uh, my dad came home one day and he's like, "Oh, my car died in the parking lot at USF," and Danny <laughs> Glover gave me a. I knew start. I knew you were going to say something about Danny. <laughs> I knew you were going to say something about Danny. I love it. I love it. And like, there's a short list of people who chose to be in the Bay while working in show business and yes. had that kind of success, right? Yes. And Danny Glover is one of them. Absolutely. You know, when I was a kid, there was, you know, Whoopi Goldberg was making movies in the Bay and Robin Williams. And, you know, there are there are people who have chosen that, but it's a short list. You were on that list, and I can't imagine that you didn't know Danny Glover before you moved back. No, well, Danny was one when, when I mentioned when I referenced having friends in the Bay Area. Uh, um, Danny was absolutely one of them, one of the um, one of the um, uh, premier uh, friends that I that I that I had. And he, while he was not the reason that we moved back, the fact that Danny was here and we were friends, and and, and in fact, when we started. Uh, when my wife and I started um, looking, uh, we had a place in Englewood, New Jersey, right outside of New York City. Um, and when we started looking for a house in the Bay Area, we would come out and we would, and we would stay with Danny. Um, we'd stay at his house. So when you started that story, I said, Danny figures into this somehow. <laughs> so, And it sounds like a very Danny thing to do, just to stop and give a cat a ride. It's great. i mean he i i get the impression that he chose to live in the bay because you know such a huge part of what he has done in his life is activism absolutely and you know san francisco is a place where that can be your life um and and where and and i get the, the the reason i mention that is because i get the sense from you in your career that there is a significant part of you, at least coming out of ACT in the 70s, who was committed to the idea that we can do acting, whether it's theater or something else, um, and impact the world. That acting was was an act of, you know, furthering social justice. That's true. Even that is very, very true. And I'm sure that I'm almost positive that the reason that you're quoting that is because you, you, you've heard me reference that in other interviews. <clears throat> and that's, that's true. In, in 2023, it sounds almost quaint that one could believe that the theater could change the world. But yes, I did come out of that ethos. 
I absolutely did. I would say to you, the reason for my not moving to the reason for my moving back to New York when I left ACT rather than moving to Los Angeles was had nothing to do with activism. It had to do with the fact I distinctly remember feeling that I will be typecast. I know what I look like. I'm a big, dark black man. And I'll be typecast if I even get offers um, to do anything uh, in Los Angeles. I just feel like I'll be typecast based on how I look rather than being given an opportunity um, for whatever um, talent that I have as an actor. And because I knew that in New York City, being a theater town, that I would hopefully, knock on wood, get more opportunities to work as an actor and explore the craft of acting, it was a no-brainer for me. I'm going to New York um, because I want to work in the theater and, 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 and explore my craft. Um, so that's, that's what the, my decision was. Um, that's what caused me to, to, to move to New York. And I also felt, and I'm sure you've, you've heard me reference this in other interviews, I, I just felt that I needed to, as an actor, learn the craft. Um, even though I, I had studied at the American Conservatory Theater, I, I wanted to continue exploring and studying and honing my instrument um, uh, as an actor. And I hoped that in doing that, when and if I ever got the opportunity to work for the camera, I would have more to bring to my work um, as, a, as an actor working for the camera. And that's kind of the way it worked out, even though at the, at the time there was obviously no guarantee that that would happen. But my, my decision to move to New York had to do with wanting to engage the craft and just get better as an actor, technically. One of the things about Unprisoned and your role in performance in Unprisoned that I really enjoyed is, so your character is getting out of a federal penitentiary, is some kind of serious criminal, we know right from the start. Don't fall backwards into it, but... Um, you have the body and the presence for it. You're six foot four, something like that. You're a big dude. Um, six two. And your performance is a very light one. It's a it's a pretty sort of warm show for the subject matter. <laughs> um, and, and when you say light, you don't mean lightweight, right? <laughs> no, I I mean that there's a that there you know you, it does not call upon you very often to be threatening, for example, right? Like you could be, and there is we can see in your body that um, this is somebody who's been through that trauma that requires occasional threateningness, but. Um, uh, or at least capable of passing through that physically, right? But like, you're pretty fun in trying to figure out how to love and be a happy real person in the real world. Okay, I'm going to attribute that in large measure to the person who inspired the part of Edwin, and that is Tracy McMillan's father, Harold. Um. One of the, there are a couple things that I want to just um, speak to. I am being released, Edwin, I am being released from a halfway house. So it's, that's, I have already, and these, these elements are really important from the standpoint of how to approach this work and how to approach playing this part. So I'm not being released. I've been in the penitentiary, in and out of the penitentiary. In and out of the pen over the years, absolutely. But I'm, in fact, being released from a halfway house, which means that I have, as you, I'm sure you know, I have um, begun the process from the experience of being in this halfway house um, of, 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 of interacting, reconnecting with society. 
So it's not as if I'm being actually released from the pen per se. That's that's one. That's why your your anklet's coming off in the first there, scene, exactly. in the first scene. It's not the prison gates open. That's or exactly right. That's exactly so. That, and that's an important distinction to make. Um, an equally, if not more important distinction to make is that this character Edwin, having been based inspired by Harold Macmillan, Tracy Macmillan's. Uh, father, when I met Harold, Harold had a light touch. (laughs) Tracy said to me, and I will never forget, Tracy said to me, and this was really a key in for me um, to, to how to approach this character. She said to me, if you met my dad, you would never know. If, if somebody hadn't told you, you would never know that this is a man who'd been in and out of, 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 of prison over the years. And that was a key to me. Uh, and it, and it, it was part of, it became part of the ethos of, of, the, of the show in a sense, because um, the part of the point of what we're trying to communicate to actors is, is that these are human beings um, in the final, final analysis. And there, there is such a thing, and there should be such a thing as redemption. And I know that that's a, you know, a hackneyed, in some instances, hackneyed and overused term. But, but people do deserve a second chance. And somebody like Harold was somebody who did not possess that I saw. Um, he, he was not a, a, a man who walked into a room and one thought, oh, what, who's that dude? He had a grace. He had a charm. Funny as hell. I mean, had a had a sense of humor, even about his own foibles, and they were characteristics that I chose to uh, try to investigate—not try to investigate—in my um, as I started working on Edwin, because they were exactly the kinds of characteristics that many people might not necessarily associate with an ex-con. And partially, that's the point. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So those those comp- the components that you or the characteristics that you reference uh, on many levels are characteristics that Harold himself possessed that I am now mining as I create Edwin. You corrected yourself when you said based on and changed it to inspired by. So... Yeah. What was it about this character that you or the showrunner or creator felt should be different from this real human being that lived in real life, lives in mm. real life? Um, because I, I guess I want to believe that I'm, I'm smart enough to know that it wouldn't have worked for me to try to do an impersonation of this man. Um, we're very different. And on some level... My options creatively were broadened immeasurably um, in making the decision and, and agreeing with my my with with Carrie and with Tracy that I would not be doing an impersonation, but ra- of of Harold, but rather I'd be selecting unilaterally. Frankly, I'd unilaterally be selecting certain components and using those components as points of departure for whatever it was that I was going to. Um, create so, so that did clear- you say that to did you say the unilateral part to them like did you say I know this is your dad but at the end of the day I'm gonna I'm gonna choose the things that end up in my performance because I'm a I'm the actor I'm the one that's on screen right that sounds kind of um, that sounded rude ruder than I meant it to yeah but- <laughs> so so <laughs> yeah I didn't I didn't put it in those terms we all agreed that the way to go was to use Harold as, a, as inspiration. And that's what Tracy wanted. That's what Carrie wanted. We all agreed that that would be um, uh, the, the, the smart way to focus in on this work. Look, I played Satchel Paige, right, in a, in a film that I'm really proud of, um, a film called Soul of the Game. Uh, similarly, and, and, and in preparing to do 
that work, I read everything that I could get my hands on about Satchel Page. Obviously, Satchel Page was long gone. This was in the you know mid nineteen nineties. Um, but I took elements that I gleaned from reading all this material about Satchel Page, and I used them as points of departure for whatever my um, rendition of Satchel Page would be. I was never ever trying to. Um, you, I couldn't impersonate um, Satchel Page, nor was it my desire, nor was it the desire of the director. But what it, what um, we did want to do was to, um, and he pretty much left me alone, the director, Kevin Rodney Sullivan, to, to, to do my own work. But I was clear that um, even though I was playing Satchel Page, quote-unquote, I was also selecting certain kinds, certain characteristics that I gleaned Satchel Page had and then building on that. And even similarly playing um, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, a man who um, I am, we are, you know, I think, I don't, I never met the man, I don't need to meet the man, diametrically opposed on, 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 on so many levels, but um, similarly, you know, I, I certainly was not trying to impersonate Clarence Thomas, um, but rather find, um, discover if there were any similarities between he and I and, and build on that as I, as I created, you know, my version, my iteration, um, uh, my interpretation of, of, of Clarence Thomas. This show is based on the life of its creator. This is, yes. these are stories that um, have sprung from a real human being's real life. Yes. But when this show came to you, you must have been struck by the way that the themes, even just in the pilot, um, are connected to things in your actual life. Um, Actually, ish, ish. I mean, this is what, this is the things I'm talking about. Uh And tell me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. They're not things, they're not, I'm not talking about you relating directly to your character necessarily. What I'm saying is, number one, this is a story about a character who had an absent father and like very mixed circumstances of being raised. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she has a foster family in the picture. She has her father's partner in the picture. She has all these different things going on. Um, big part of the foster family situation is race. Mm-hmm. Um, and you yourself grew up with an absent father you're you were an immigrant multiple times mm-hmm. um and part of your childhood you had not legal foster parents i don't think but like your when your mom was in nursing school mm-hmm. uh she wasn't allowed to have kids on campus so right. you lived with a white family in england where you were right. part of your life right so and you- i wonder if that made this show more appealing <laughs> Or whether you were like worried about it, you know right. what I mean. I was not worried about it uh, at all, and I would. I guess I have to say, bravo! You've done. You've clearly done some homework, or you've looked at you know interviews that I've done. Um, so all of the, pretty much a lot of what you said is 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 accurate. Um, I I not, one thing I recall one element that I recall we all shared in. Uh, I think our very first Zoom call, if not the first, the second Zoom call, we all spoke about, broadly speaking, not in the specific, I really need to be clear about this, but we all referenced that we had daddy issues. (laughs) Um, It's also very important for me to, um, um, to say to you, there was no script. Initially, there was a conversation between myself, Carrie, and Tracy. 
in which Kerry Washington, Kerry Washington, star of the show, and Tracy McMillan, the creator of the show. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, Kerry. Yes, exactly. Um, there was a there was a conversation about what we hoped to achieve with this work. There was no script. Um, <clears throat> so, what I was what I was responding to were was the content of the conversation, and then as far as as far as the content of the conversation was concerned, there were a couple of elements. We we all referenced that we had had, it wasn't so much about daddy issues, but it was, we all were recognizing that we have certain kinds of dynamics present uh, in terms of our relationship with our fathers. Certainly, Tracy and I, um, we all, Tracy, I, I mentioned that, yes, I had been unofficially in the foster um, system that I had been in the system as a as a young person, um, Tracy obviously has. So we had that in common, even though our experiences were very very different. But to your question, none of that scared me. None of that scared me. But rather, it was um, I had an awareness that that may be part of my way into this world and this character. We'll wrap up with Delroy Lindo in just a minute. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Since we reached our highest milestone during the Max Fun Drive, we are creating a Max Fun Foley library full of sound effects from your favorite hosts. The whole Max Fun community will be able to use it. So, what would you like it to feature? People high fiving? Walking through mud? Chicken clucking? Jazz kazoo? Head to MaximumFun.org slash Foley. That's MaximumFun.org slash F-O-L-E-Y and submit your ideas. We're excited to make this silly thing together and even more excited to see what you all create with it. And thank you again for a great Max Fun Drive. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking today with Delroy Lindo. His latest project is the comedy series Unprisoned. You can stream it on Hulu. You had a really incredible performance in Defy Bloods. Mm. And um, it was one that was very resonant for me because I grew up with a dad who was a Vietnam vet. Oh, dang. And um, Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And he worked with vets through much of my childhood. He was an organizer and, you know, he, he worked in the, in the peace movement. He worked for an outfit in San Francisco called Swords to Plowshares. Um, and when he was getting sober when I was little, um, it was after he split up with my mom, but before he remarried. And so sometimes I would be there and he, we would go to meetings. Okay. And they would be vets meetings. My dad went to a lot of vet-specific meetings. And so when I was little, I just spent a lot of time as a seven-year-old sitting in the corner drawing while vets talked about vet stuff yeah. and sobriety. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just lived with a lot of trauma through that. I really you hear know, you. And, my and, father's and, trauma and, and PTSD and, you know, many, many of the people that he knew and people he was attracted to being friends with and we're people that get that. Yeah. And thank you for, sh I really appreciate you sharing that, man. Um, I appreciate you sharing that about yourself, but please, what's your question? My question is that to five bloods is largely a movie about how you engage with trauma in your life. Um, yeah. And first of all, I wonder how, you came to understand war trauma and how it affects people's lives to the extent you were able. Right. First of all, <clears throat> I'm going to say that it, it sounds based on your description of your dad, that God bless him. He found no matter what his experiences with PTSD may have been, he was able to find constructive outlets for himself. Is that, is that fair? Oh, you very much so, yeah. Yeah, thank God and God bless him, and God, God bless him, and and I hope that that meant that your relationship with your dad or the circumstances that you were in with your dad were 
not as dire as maybe they might have been. Yeah, a lot, he... better than they, a lot better than they could have been. It's a fair characterization. Amen. And that's, that's fantastic. To your question, first of all, I will always consider that Spike gifting me that part, the opportunity to play that part, is, is exactly that, a gift. Um, and I'm so proud of that work. I'm monumentally proud of that work. With regard to what I learned, I certainly became aware of my own relationship to PTSD, and I'm saying PTSD in quotes, radio audience, you can't see me. I've got my hands up in the quotes. Um, I'm saying PTSD in quotes because I am characterizing this dynamic as it relates to me, my own relationship to my own trauma. And I mind that. That wasn't the be-all, end-all of, 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 of what I did in that in that work, but certainly I was mining certain aspects of my own trauma. And in some instances, making that work, I became aware of some things that I had not been aware of prior to starting that work. And the beautiful thing about that is that I could mine, I could mine that stuff and bring it to the surface in service of Paul George and the narrative and the film overall. So certainly there were things that I learned about myself um, in the making of, 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 of that work. And, and just as with your dad, your dad found constructive outlets to negotiate his PTSD I would say broadly, my, my acting career, and I think all actors probably are, are dealing with their stuff through the prism of whatever parts they're playing. Um, and certainly I have done that in various work that I've done, but certainly with Paul in The Five Bloods, um, that was very definitely the case. And I did learn some things about myself in the process of making that work. Did you feel some relief from it? I mean, you're a man, you're, you were, you know, 67 years old or whatever when you were making that movie. Um, but, you know, I know because I've seen it that that can happen at that point in someone's life. Relief. I don't know that I would characterize it as relief. I would characterize whatever the experience of making that work gave to me, aside from the obvious creative um, benefits, I would say there's an added, I know more now. I know more about myself, a little bit more about myself, which I can now, I can now uh, share parts of, perhaps, in a memoir that I'm writing. Plug, plug. <laughs> um, a memoir that I'm writing. And in, in my writing, in the writing of this memoir, pretty much as a result of doing that film, I've been able to start unearthing some things uh, that will be in the memoir that I, I wasn't necessarily aware of before doing that film. So is it relief? I, I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, uh, character, characterize it as relief, but I would characterize it as an added awareness. You know, you didn't want to talk about yourself publicly for a long time in your career. Yeah. Like talk about your personal experiences. Yeah. Um, and you went through a process of learning about your mother's life and the lives of your mother's contemporaries, people who came from Jamaica to the UK. The Caribbean. Um, We're yeah. Jamaican, but the Caribbean in general, but certainly, yes, in, in the case yeah. of my mom, Jamaica. Uh -huh. Especially the British Caribbean, right? Because people could, people could travel. Absolutely. The British Caribbean, um, yeah. And 
And it's a very different thing to have gotten to the point where you're writing a memoir. No question. Um, no question. And like what I hear you describing to me, and I'm sorry if this is grandiloquent, but like what I am hearing you describe to me is acting as a way to keep from revealing yourself or to reveal yourself in such a mediated form that no one has to know you and being comfortable showing yourself. All of the above. They're not, they're not mutually exclusive. All of the above. Depending on what the, what the work is, depending on what the character is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, to the extent that, again, your dad finding the work that he found, helping your dad maintain a balance, uh, that has been my work as an actor has been that which has helped me maintain a balance, uh, mental, emotional, et cetera, et cetera, balance. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've said in various interviews that, um, you know, acting saved my life in quotes, but I say that um, literally and figuratively. And I am extraordinarily f fortunate that I have had these outlets in my life because I'm really not sure had I not had those outlets, I'm not sure what, what would have happened. But thank God that I have had these outlets and been able to make a living in the bargain. And acting is, or can be, a home, too. <laughs> no like question. That's one of the special things about it is that you have a family when you're doing it. This is true. That's, that's absolutely true. Um, uh, yeah, no question. And, you know, to the question that you asked me 15 minutes ago, yeah, acting is home. It, 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 the, the, acting is, is a home, is a place of solace, is a, pla is a sanctuary, even when it's uh, rife with, you know, stuff. It's a place that, as you, to use your term, that is mediated, that is, that is specifically focused, that is specifically housed, um, that one can express oneself, explore um, in the relative safety of either, either, you know, a play in the theater or in for the camera in whatever project one is doing. So acting is home. The problem for me when I hear myself say that, it sounds really precious. It sounds so damn precious. And one does not want to sound precious. Look, on the one hand, it's home. It's everything that I just said. On the other hand, it's a job of work. And it's a wonderful job of work. But it's a job of work <clears throat> that one engages. But it does constitute, it has constituted for me and continues to constitute a safe place, a home, in your, in your to use your, your terminology. If it wasn't work, it wouldn't be the, it wouldn't be the same thing. The work is the part that, I mean, that's the part that makes it stick. Knock on wood, I hope so. I mean, that's the part that gives it value. Oh, oh that's part of the part. But, that that's, gives... but I mean, if it wasn't work for you, I'm not talking about the work as the product. I'm talking about the work as the process. Mm -hmm. So if it wasn't hard work for you, mm -hmm. if you weren't really working hard when you were acting, mm -hmm. it couldn't have that effect on your life because, or your traumas, right? Like it's, my dad used to say, go for a walk. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> like you got to do something. You got to do something. But yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I'll tell you something else <clears throat> as it relates to, as it relates to Bloods, as it relates to Unprisoned, as it relates to some other pieces of work that I've done, uh, the Side House Rules, the films with Spike, the other films with Spike, when they touch, uh, and there have been others. I, they're, they're the, these are the titles that come to, to my mind as I'm having this conversation, but there have been others. But certainly another component of the, of the, the reward for the work, to state the obvious, is the impact that it has on audiences. So that one does the work, one puts one... One invests in this thing, in this process, and one does the work. And then 
the the added component of the the gratification and the affirmation that one attains when um, the audience responds so positively. One of the things that's been certainly it happened with Bloods. I mean, there there are various pieces of work that I can mention um, in which I've been communicated with by audiences who have seen the work, and it's just incredibly. I mean, it's, it's it's deeply gratifying and affirming, and certainly that has been the case with Unprison. Some of the things that have been communicated, that have been said, that have been shared by journalists, by journalists, by friends, family, audience members, have been really, really, really gratifying about what this what this work um, has meant and how it has touched people. So that's. Um, that's another component of having to do with the re- the reward of of making this work and being and, this and this, that you this can feel to work. some extent like you're you're engaging in service. Hell yeah, hell yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's right. That's exactly right. Because I imagine some days when you're an actor, you're thinking like, "Oh man, am I some actor?" And you know what I mean? Like, oh gosh, here I am in show business and blah, blah, blah. I'm famous. And then maybe you can say, you can think to yourself like, oh, but actually I'm working really hard on something that impacts people's lives. I'm working really hard on something that impacts people's lives. I I, I cannot actually honestly say that I, I, I've never felt, oh my God, I'm in show business. Uh-uh. You know why? Because it's too f- hard. Because <laughs> it's too hard to make and sustain a career. Um, I think it depends on the kind of work that one does and the kind of person that one is. I can honestly say to you, I've never felt, oh my God, I'm in show business. Uh -uh." Uh-uh. Certainly I've had instances where I feel like I'm I'm barely holding on to something, but I've never, for me, it's, it's usually a question of feeling Again, this is going to sound so precious, man, but really thankful, honestly. One, that I'm still here and still making work. I was talking with a friend of mine a few months ago, and and we would, you know, we commiserate a, a very good friend of mine, and we, and on some level, it's a skill. There are all these skills that one utilizes. You know, one goes to acting school and you, and you and you engage, you know, learning the craft and becoming a skillful worker. But then it's also a skill to get your career up and running and, and maintain that career. That's a skill because I'm sure you know um, there's all kinds of garbage that one has to deal with and uh, negotiate one's way through, which is what makes having uh, an experience such as this and various other experiences that I've had as a worker, as a creative worker, that's what makes it worthwhile. Oh, that's, that's one of the things that makes it worthwhile. And one must always be, again, I'm gonna sound really precious, but one, but one must always be profoundly grateful um, that one gets the opportunity to do that. I'm very grateful to you for taking all this time to talk to me. Uh, Not a problem. It means a lot to me. I've, your your work has been so incredible. Thank you. Um, and I'm I'm grateful that I've gotten to enjoy it. Thank you so much. That means that that does mean a lot. I really appreciate it. And um, and when I'm in Oakland tomorrow, uh, driving up to Richmond, if my battery dies. <laughs> <laughs> Don't call You're me. responsible for everything from Treasure Island East. So look here. This is what I'm going to say to you. Call Danny. Say, look, <laughs> you did it for my pops. Come on, man. Do it for me. <laughs> call Danny Glover and tell him I said that. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. All, All the right. best. I really appreciate it. Take care. The brilliant Delroy Lindo. He's incredible on Unprisoned. Nobody has charisma and presence like Delroy Lindo. It is amazing. You can watch it on Hulu. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. 
I haven't been in Los Angeles, California, though. I got to go to New Orleans, Louisiana to officiate my best friend of 40 years, Pete's wedding. Congratulations to Pete and Christine. I basically spent four straight days crying. I also visited the Ogden Museum of Southern Art there in New Orleans. That is a cool museum. You make it to New Orleans. Man, that, that was a great place. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music composed and provided to us by DJW, the legend Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to The Go Team. Thanks to Memphis Industries, their label, for sharing that music with us. You can find Bullseye on YouTube, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Follow us there. We share all our interviews. We love it when you share our interviews with your people. We really appreciate it. Recommend recommend a Bullseye to somebody this week. It means a lot to us. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 